It was a little while ago that I was watching the uh, submissions to the Parliament's Committee on Land Reform uh, by a number of individuals. We've obviously had submissions from across the political spectrum, left, right, from people, from civil society organizations, and from all over. And I think at least one thing that can be commended is the people who have been able to give testimony, uh, one of which was a certain rather well-known lawyer in our circles from the Johannesburg Bar who was discussing what I thought was a very interesting angle. So today I'd like to welcome on to the Rational Standard podcast, uh, Mark Oppenheimer. Mark, how are things on your side? Welcome. Excellent. Thanks for having me on your show. No problem. Uh, Mark, would you mind just uh, introducing yourself to the listeners a bit? Sure. Uh, as you say, I'm an advocate of the Johannesburg Bar. Uh, I was acting on behalf of the Johannesburg Attorneys Association. Um, so we put forward a submission to Parliament. Um, to look at whether or not the constitution ought to be amended to allow for expropriation without compensation. Um, in my practice, I deal with a fair amount of uh, property rights related issues in addition to other sort of constitutional matters relating to free speech and hate speech. And do you mind if I ask briefly, I know you've represented some very, very interesting people. Could you mind just uh, mentioning a few names of people, organizations who you've represented? Sure. I, I do uh, a fair amount of work for Afri Forum. So we've been involved in some uh, litigation around free speech and hate speech. I recently acted for the South African Human Rights Commission against uh, Balafi Kamalo. Um, Mr. Kamalo was a member of the ANC um, and who made a statement that became quite notorious, saying that we should do to white people what Hitler did to the Jews, uh, that deserve to be hacked to death and burnt alive and their children turned into garden fertilizer. Um, and so the Human Rights Commission uh, sought an order that his words be declared hate speech, um, which was ultimately granted. Um, I also do a lot of work for property-owning associations who um, are often exploited by, uh, by municipalities, and so I help them, uh, help them in that regard. All right. Well, uh, you know, one of the things I was interested to talk to you about was international law. If anybody watches your submission to Parliament, uh, you talk about that aspect uh, to a fair degree. And I thought this was quite interesting because I hadn't really heard anybody else mention this aspect of it. So yeah, let's go right from the very start. I think we're all very familiar with certain international organizations. But if you were to describe what exactly international law is, could you give a description of that? And I also want to ask, in addition to that, uh, what organizations that make international law um, are binding to South Africa? Or South, is South Africa bound to, rather? Yes, so our constitution makes it explicit um, that international law must be considered when uh, any court or tribunal is interpreting our law. Uh, we also say that we are bound by customary international law. So international law is uh, a complicated thing in that some of it is dealt with by a treaty, so, in other words, people sign up to be bound by uh, certain treaties. And some of it um, basically passes into common use and then becomes part of customary international law. So, um, one of the arguments that was uh, raised by the JAA uh, was to say that there are international law treaties that look at this question around uh, expropriation by states. There's a general view that um, states do have that power. Um, but that it is always accompanied by an obligation to pay compensation, and that that compensation must be adequate compensation. And then each state is given some latitude to determine what counts as adequate. So, um, you know, the idea is that states are often going to be put in a position where they need to acquire things that are privately owned. So if you think about big infrastructure projects like roads um, or maybe setting up a, a a school or a hospital in a certain area, um, often you're going to need to acquire private land. 
And so the view is that that's, you know, that's permissible um, under our constitution, permissible under international law, um, but you must pay compensation. Now, um, in our constitution in its current form, we say that there are a number of factors that must be taken into account when paying compensation. We say it must be just and equitable, and that must make reference to, first of all, market value. So you determine, you know, what is this thing worth? And you determine that um, in isolation from the fact that the state is trying to expropriate. So, for example, you might think that an expropriation scheme would artificially drive up the price of property. In other words, people say, ah, you need my property because you've got to build this road, so I'm going to ask three times the, you know, the ordinary market price. And our courts say, no, you can't do that. It's a thing called the pont court principle. When you determine market value, you determine it ordinarily. You can then adjust up or down based on other factors, one of which is the history of acquisition. Um, otherwise, was there a loan from the state? You know, had you received a state subsidy? Um, what is the use of the land going to be? So all of these factors will then determine what amount you must pay in compensation, and that, that must be just and equitable. And so the argument is that if you removed a requirement uh, of compensation at all, if you had a blanket expropriation of compensation of land in all instances, that would be a breach of international law. Um, and because it is such a widely held principle, it's part of um, customary international law. And so South Africa would be flouting that if we remove that from our constitution. So that is the other thing which I wanted to ask on is obviously uh, in in domestic law, for lack of a better word, uh, supposing a citizen breaks the law, the government has the authority to prosecute that citizen and we have appropriate punishments which are laid out such as fines, jail time, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to international law, seeing as there are various bodies which make uh, different kinds of international law, some by treaties, other may be, for example, by, I don't know, perhaps signatories to a, a charter from the United Nations or, or something like that, uh, what kind of punishments can a state which flouts international law expect uh, to receive? Well, you could wind up being taken to a tribunal where someone whose property has been confiscated by the state um, then lays a financial claim so against South Africa, saying, you know, I have an international law right for compensation. You took my land without any compensation. It's a breach of international law, and I want um, payment. Um, as far as I understand, something like this happened in Zimbabwe. So um, Zimbabwe was engaged in uh, large-scale confiscation of land, and uh, some of those people fought um, Zimbabwe in international forums and were successful. Um, and Zim was required to pay enormous amounts um, in compensation. And I think under the new regime, undertaken to do that. Um, interestingly enough, from what I gather, uh, Zim is now trying to rectify the wrongs uh, of their land confiscation process in the 90s and 2000s and are trying to pay compensation to the farmers uh, whose land was seized. Um, so, you know, Zim is sort of gone through this turbulent cycle of, of stealing people's land, recognizing that it's wrong, trying to make amends. Uh, and South Africa appears to be a few steps behind because we're about to stop the confiscation process. Now, on a slightly different question, uh, you obviously made your argument uh, that according to international law, we would be flouting uh, certain, or we'd be flouting certain charters or certain laws, and, and for, for that reason, it would be a bad idea. I'm interested to ask. This is a, a bit of a on a different topic, but is internet is having international law binding uh, on an individual country really a good idea? And there's two potential problems I could see with that. Uh, the one is that people who want to argue that sovereignty is really important, 
you know, personally, my own political beliefs, I don't really subscribe to that view, but I think many will say that it's important for a nation to be able to uh, do things according to its own laws and not be bound by some extra national body. This is sort of where Euroscepticism comes up in Europe, and there are even some people who want certain countries to pull out of the United Nations. Um, so that's the one thing. The other thing is that uh, have there ever been times throughout history where there have been widely regarded treaties or international laws of some kind which have been bad? I mean, it's patently obvious that individual states have had and still have laws which are you know, morally repugnant. You know, Apartheid is the most obvious example in South Africa. Uh, but internationally, uh, have there been examples of, of things which uh, are of the same caliber? Interesting question. So I think you're right. The, the first claim is that you want um, to protect state sovereignty, um, that state should have some level of freedom in terms of deciding what, what rules um, they will use to, to govern. Uh, and so that sort of set of customary international law um, is a kind of set of principles which you know all reasonable states will agree to. So, for example, uh, you have crimes against humanity. You know, the idea that if you perpetrate a genocide uh, against the people, uh, that that is a, a breach of customary international law, uh, regardless of whether you have any domestic laws prohibiting genocide. Now, I think it's pretty hard to argue that states should have the freedom uh, to annihilate groups inside of their borders, um, that if they happen to have disdain for uh, Armenians uh, or Jews or whatever minority group you can think of, uh, that they should be free to exterminate those people um, and that they're not bound by any kind of international sanctions. Um, so it's, it, it seems clear to me that there ought to be restrictions on state sovereignty. Um, the question, of course, is you know, how you deal with that infraction. Um, and you know, sometimes it's through other states intervening in your state, um, sending in you know, peacekeeping troops uh, you know, or applying international law sanctions. Uh, so often these the ways of resolving them are political in nature. Um, with regards to bad laws, uh, I can't think of anything offhand from a customary law international basis that's bad. And maybe part of that is because, in other words, there's a, a minimum consensus requirement. You know, this idea of, well, it must be widely spread. Um, there must be a general view that these are, uh, are good ideas. Uh, and they tend to be things like, you know, uh, don't, uh, don't confiscate land without payment or don't, uh, don't engage in genocide. And with regards to particular treaties, well, there might be things that people have signed up to that are bad for their citizens or a bad idea. Um, but you know, if they've done it freely, they've signed up for that treaty. Let's move on to uh, the specifics of expropriation without compensation. I'm interested to put to you a scenario which I've always had in my mind, but I've, I've yet to have answered. So, so here's the scenario, and if you could give me a, a legal answer to what would be done in a situation like this, um, I would be interested to hear it. Obviously, in South Africa, we are living hundreds and hundreds of years after conquests in South Africa, which would have displaced people of their land. Now, seeing as it's hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards, land which, let's take an example, you have a plot of land which was stolen in the 1600s. Uh, the guy who stole it sold it to someone, who sold it to someone, who sold it to someone, and every transaction after that point has been legitimate, and so it's safe to say that the current owners have not have not participated in any sort of theft. Uh, but regardless, this land is indeed stolen property. Um, what could be done in a situation like that? Now, obviously, the problem is that the current owner of the land 
uh, has purchased it legitimately in good faith. He's not broken any laws, uh, but somebody else has been wronged and it's really impossible to uh, try to seek compensation from the original person who stole property. Uh, so what is to be done in a situation like that? Okay, so there's a philosopher, Jeremy Waldron, who looks at these sort of cases of uh, intergenerational injustice. And he makes a quite compelling moral argument for why you might want a limitation in terms of time. So the example you've given, you know, we're looking at 350-year history. And he says, well, what we're supposed to be engaged in is some sort of but-for test. In other words, if the land wasn't taken from this person in an illegitimate manner, what would have happened? And he says, let's say we, we, we take it to today. In other words, I come and I steal your car. Okay. You have a pretty good reason to say, well, I should return the car. Uh, I should receive no compensation whatsoever um, when the car returns to you. I'm the direct thief. Okay. Uh, and when we do the but-for, we can say, well, we've now managed to resolve the injustice perfectly because of the, the short delay in time. When you're looking at 350 years, the difficulty we have is trying to determine, well, what would have happened to that land otherwise? Would it have gone down to that descendant uh, 350 years down the line? Well, we don't know. Um, you know, that, that original landowner might have um, himself sold it. Uh, he might have gambled it away. Um, it's, he might have um, lost it due to, to weather conditions. You know, all sorts of um, intervening factors that have nothing to do with the theft may have meant that that land never wound up in the estate of the descendant. And so he thinks the further back in time you go, you have more moral reason to say that you ought not to have um, compensation in those cases because there's so much noise in history. So he thinks that you should have a, a kind of cap off within living memory. Um, and that's kind of what we do at the moment in our constitution. So we have a cutoff period of 1913. So just over 100 years. Um, it's 1913 because of the 1913 Land Act. Um, and the idea is that if you were dispossessed after that, well, then you can have a, a claim for compensation or for the restoration of your land. Now, the second part of your question is regards to, well, what do you do about these innocent parties who happen to be in possession? So we can look at what other countries have done abroad. So, for example, in Germany, um, they've taken the view that if you're a Nazi and you stole Jewish property, um, it should be restored to the descendants. Um, and you should receive no compensation whatsoever because you're a direct thief. Now, that seems just to me. Um, there's no good reason to uh, compensate a thief um, under circumstances when they have no legitimate claim at all to the property. But what the Germans have done is to recognize that often what you have are these multiple transfers and that the person who's in possession of the item um, does so in good faith um, and did nothing wrong. They had no knowledge of the fact that the property was stolen. And in that case, the idea is that what you try and do is restore the property to the rightful claimant, and then you compensate the person uh, who held the property, um, and that the state does that. So what you do is that um, you distribute the loss. In other words, all German citizens are contributing their taxes towards a fund, um, which is then used for, um, for compensating those that are innocent um, possessors of, of property. You see, I quite like, per personally, my own opinion is I quite like that system in the South African context, because if we go back to the 1913 Native Land Act, that is obviously an act uh, which is enforced by the government of South Africa. And therefore, I think it's only right that the government is the one who should be liable to compensate in cases where the government is the one who deprived people of property. 
Uh, but anyway, that's just a, a more of a personal opinion of mine. Uh, moving on to a slightly different topic, uh, the rule of law is is often something spoken about, and it's I think it's a it's a term which is severely misunderstood. I often see the mayor of Johannesburg using it when I think he rather means law and order. Uh, now I know this is a rather complicated concept, but uh, could you briefly explain what the rule of law is, and then we can perhaps talk about that in terms of the current proposal to amend the constitution and and, and the sort of ill effects that would have according to the rule of law. Sure. Okay, so first of all, we must recognize that our Constitution enshrines the rule of law in Section 1. Um, and we have different thresholds for changing the Constitution. So, for example, if you want to change um, something in the Bill of Rights, you need two-thirds um, to do that. If you want to change anything in, the, in Section 1, it requires 75%. So there's uh, a view that's being developed partly by uh, Mark von Staden at Rational Standard, which is that the, the rule of law necessarily entails um, the protection of uh, life, liberty, and property. That if, you, that if you change the constitution to remove property rights, you would necessarily be interfering with the rule of law. Okay. So the debate is as to whether the rule of law actually builds in any substance um, or whether it is um, more procedural in nature. So there's a famous paper by Lon Fuller, um, where he looks at requirements for things to be a law. Um, now, there's a, a, a view espoused by natural lawyers. Natural lawyers say basically people have a whole bunch of natural rights, either God-given or um, due to the nature of their humanity, and uh, laws must be in accordance with those natural rights. So you might think you've got a natural right to life, um, possibly a right to, to property, um, and if you have laws that infringe on those things, it's a breach of your natural rights. Positivists don't take that view. Positivists say the way that you work out what the law is, is that you look at the sources of the law. So you look in your in your legislation, you look in your case law, you ask did, were these things promulgated through the correct process? In other words, did the judge have the authority to, to produce this law? Did parliament have the authority? And then you say, well, these are the laws that we have. Now the positivists can say, these laws, um, some of these laws are good, and some of these laws are bad. Um, they can draw a distinction between immoral laws um, and moral laws. The natural lawyer can't. The natural lawyer just says these things aren't law, which looks strange when it's you know if you look at let's say unjust laws um, used during apartheid. The natural lawyer wants to say these aren't laws. The positive says there are laws. They're being enforced. They're being used to put people in prison. They clearly seem to be applied by the state. They're just evil. So. Fuller then says, okay, well, there must be, besides, there must be, if we've set aside this content question, there must be other things that we can use to determine whether something counts as a law. And he has these kind of logical sets. So, for example, he says the law can't be contradictory. Um, in other words, you, it can't require you to do something and, and not do uh, the negative of it. Uh, he says the law must be known. Um, you know, you can't, he has this, in his essay, he talks about King Rex engages in a whole bunch of legislative actions, none of which results in any laws. So Rex writes down a series of laws and never tells anyone about it. Um, he produces laws that say that are adults with each other. Um, now, the question is whether, as I said, depending on what account of law you have, is the rule of law going to be useful in determining or not whether you can remove property rights? I think it's an open-ended question. I think it's worth pursuing that avenue of attack. Um, there are a couple of other similar avenues. 
So in India, for example, their constitutional court takes a view called the basic structure doctrine. So they imply that behind the written constitution is another constitution. And there are certain things that must be in your written And they come up with a set of principles. And they say that you cannot change the constitution if you would remove those principles. Look at the substance of some of those principles. Um, it's not clear that everyone would agree to them. For example, they say a welfare state um, is one of those things that must be in their constitution. I think one of the judges says that socialism is one of those values that must be there. Um, it's not clear that everyone would agree to that. There is another line of attack that I think is well worth exploring, and I haven't seen much writing on it at all. It's another clause in the Bill of Rights, which is Section 36. So Section 36 is um, the limitations clause. And um, basically what it says is as follows. It says, the rights in the Bill of Rights may only be limited in terms of the law of general application to the extent the limitation is reasonable and justifiable in an open and democratic society based on human dignity, quality and freedom. And then it looks at five other factors. Now, to change the constitution, you would have to produce a bill. Um, now, that bill would be a law of general application. Let's say it said something like, um, uh, all land is subject to expropriation uh, without compensation. It would be a law of general application. But then we'd have to pass this further threshold, which is, is it reasonable and justifiable uh, given these other foundational values of dignity, equality, and freedom? And it may fail right there. Um, so there's an argument that, first of all, we must recognize the Bill of Rights has never been changed in South Africa's history. The constitutional text has been changed 17 times, but for quite minor technical things like provincial boundaries or whether we should have floor crossing or not. Um, but nothing substantive with regards to our Bill of Rights. And so there may be an argument that um, Section 36 provides a bulwark um, against infringing on, on the Bill of Rights, and that if they can't justify those infringements in terms of Section 36, uh, then it must fail. I like that third line of attack very much, and I've heard people talk about it. Certainly one politician who has mentioned this sort of line of, of thought uh, is Musiwa Lakota. He always says that in order to understand the Constitution, you have to start reading at Section 1. Uh, do you want to quickly ask, I know you, you mentioned this in the third line of attack, but does the Constitution have a sort of structure to it in that uh, certain foundational principle, principles of the Constitution uh, are the antecedents to other amendments in it. Uh, this is, for example, if you were to amend something which comes after the Bill of Rights, which would inf uh, uh, contradict the Bill of Rights, I suppose that would be a contradiction in and of itself. Um, but would, would an amendment like that be struck down legally? Well, as I say, so there's... I, I'm of the view that um, if, if there is a move to change the Constitution... Um, to remove um, property rights, that it's likely to be subject to some sort of court challenge. And I think um, it's important that people are act strategically and that a, a full range of different um, arguments are put before the court. So the three that I've discussed now, um, you know, because we're dealing with a very novel situation where our Bill of Rights has never been changed, um, you know, our courts haven't had to consider these kind of foundational questions. And, uh, you know, I, I think... The more, the more radical line is this idea that there's some sort of hidden constitution behind our constitution. At, at one point, this was true. So when the constitution was, we, we had an interim constitution, then we had a final constitution, and uh, there was a process of certification by the constitutional court. 
and they were a set of principles um, which were written in the abstract and the question was that the constitution had to abide by those principles um, but once the constitution came into being once it crystallized the idea is that those principles then lost any power that they may have once had um, so i think it's unlikely that our constitutional court would try and import extra principles. It's going to look at the document itself to determine whether it's whether you can have these infringements. Um, and so that's why rule of law is going to be one, and you'd have to cash out exactly what rule of law means. And if there's an argument that it necessarily implies the protection of property, well, that's going to be a good argument. The other one that I think um, may be more fruitful, as I say, is the Section 36 line. Uh, because here we would be dealing with um, legislation which would be limiting the Bill of Rights, namely Section uh, 25. And it's got to meet these other thresholds. And so when we combine that with the idea that you've got a customary international requirement of paying adequate compensation, um, if that's one of those things that's done in democratic societies, well, then abolishing that is not going to seem reasonable and justifiable in our democratic society. Since 1994 and, uh, well, since we established our constitutional court uh, in a democratic South Africa, uh, I'm unaware of exactly what date the constitutional court came into being as it is, but uh, I've seen numerous complaints from you know, f- legal scholars who are Facebook friends of mine. I know Martin has complained about the way in which the constitutional court has been shifting ideologically. Now, as you said, there's likely to be a legal challenge. I think so long as people like Afri Forum and the Institute of Race Relations remain around, there will certainly be a legal challenge in some way or another. Uh, it seems to me people like Afri Forum often like taking the procedural line, uh, which I think is a, is a, good, th- is a good way of, of attacking this. Uh, but uh, the last thing I want to ask is, you know, based on the sort of ideological shifting of the constitutional court, do you think that there's a chance that, you know, even if we have a really, really strong argument, that they might take the view that in order to have some sort of cosmic justice on this issue, uh, that it may go through. That's a bit of a vague question, but this is the sort of thing which I've been hearing from legal scholars in South Africa. Very often, uh, the interpretation of the constitutional court takes more into account what they consider to be just, and then they use that to interpret the, uh, to give uh, decisions in cases which may run contrary to the, the statutes themselves, but because they fulfill the ends, uh, they are seen as being legitimate. I hope that makes sense. I'm not a lawyer myself. <laughs> well, I have a sense of where you're going. Um, so one of the examples we can look at is this case of Agrius A. So it's a case authored by uh, Chief Justice McQueen. And the issue there was um, whether the state has the power to become custodian of all mineral rights in the country. They passed legislation which would have allowed them to achieve the status of custodianship. The idea is custodianship is different from ownership um, and would then not require any obligation to pay compensation because they would not be um, taking property to become owners of it and they would not be redistributing it. They would be acting as custodian for all citizens. And, uh, you know, there was a concern that if you could have this custodianship for mineral rights, that it could be applied to all property rights. And that comes out in Judge Froneman's um, dissent. But if you look at the language of the judgment, what McQueen does is he sort of creates an exception for mineral rights. So he says, these things have a very particular history in South Africa. He thinks that, you know, minerals have a special status, that they're sort of a part of the earth, um, that we've had a history of 
exploitation of um, mine workers and of minerals in South Africa before. And so he kind of creates this little sub-caveat and he thinks that uh, it's justifiable for the state to engage in it. But then says, um, you know, these things must be determined on a case-by-case basis and thinks that it wouldn't apply to all sorts of other property. Um, now, a couple of years later, uh, the Department of Trade and Industry tried to produce some legislation called the Promotion and Protection of Investment Bill, where they sought to apply this custodianship principle to all property, to um, basically your investments, your car, your you know, your house. Uh, and um, when it was pointed out to them that actually Agrisa was much more limited in scope than they had thought, um, they withdrew um, that sort of those portions of the legislation. So the difficulty, as you point out, is that the constitutional court is the highest court in the land. Um, that really it's bound by the text of the constitution, but it has a fair amount of latitude. It's not directly bound by its own judgments. You know, it could decide that um, prior iterations of the court have got it wrong, and then it's going to rectify that. So there's always going to be some uncertainty about what a, what that court will do. Um, I think, you know, it's going to depend on. What, what view that they, they take. Uh, I, I asked this question to McQueen recently. Um, he was giving a talk at, uh, at Gibbs. And, uh, you know, obviously he's in a position where it's difficult for him to, to answer what he would decide. And I think if he did answer what he would decide, he'd probably have to recuse himself in a further case. But his line was basically, he hoped that the parties could get together and reach some sort of negotiated settlement on this front. Um, which implies that, in other words, there is some need for land reform. You have to undo the injustices of the past, um, but you also don't want to create further injustices by wholesale stealing land from, from innocent citizens. Now, as I mentioned in Section 36 to you earlier, you know, that test kind of requires you to look at a number of factors. And one of them is, are there less restrictive means to achieve the purpose that you want? Now, the purpose here is going to be land reform or rectifying past injustices. Now, in my submission, um, we looked at some of the, the data around this, one of which is that between 1995 and 2014, we've engaged in a very extensive land reform process. So people could you know, um, assert claims, um, provide evidence, um, and if they proved them, they would receive compensation in the form of money uh, or in the form of their land back. Now, during this time, 1.8 million individuals received compensation. That's an enormous number of people. Um, the other thing that we see is that the amount of money that's been dedicated by government to the land reform process is very minuscule. In the last budget, it was 0.3% of the budget. So if you're faced with the choice of eroding property rights and sending a signal to the international community uh, that this is not a place to invest because we may seize your, your land without any compensation, or saying, well, let's use some of our tax revenue to increase the budget for, for acquiring land and redistributing it. Well, the latter seems like the less restrictive means. Uh, it seems like an option that's not going to destroy our economy, you know, endanger food security or, or render, you know, millions of people unemployed. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that the Constitutional Court could look into uh, when, if, if any kind of actual change to Section 25 is, is put forward. Well, I think you've uh, spoken about some very, very interesting uh, lines of attack which we could take. It does seem to me like we have actually quite a sturdy constitution and there are many provisions within our constitution which people just don't realize, which may hypothetically should prevent this thing, this sort of amendment to the constitution from happening. Uh, But of course, 
it'll be up to the highest court in the land in all likelihood to uh, see whether or not that happens. I think if this does go through, we can obviously expect a legal challenge to it. And it seems to me like it'll likely go up all the way to the constitutional court. It is, after all, a constitutional issue. Um, but this was a very imp- uh, interesting podcast. Thank you very much. You certainly educated me a lot. And uh, it was a short but sharp. So, Mark Oppenheimer, thanks very much. Uh, if people want to find you on social media, or would you rather prefer to keep it more private? Uh, where, where can they follow you? Facebook, Twitter, or, or do you keep a low profile there? I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I've sent uh, three tweets uh, in, my, in my life. Uh, All right, that's uh, fine. More and more skeptical <laughs> social media. Um, but if people want to read up about the kind of work that I do, um, so if you look on bridgeadvocates.coza, um, you'll see my profile is up there and has a list of um, articles that I've written, um, interviews that I've done, um, television broadcasts, and uh, it's also linked to a podcast I did with Gwen uh, Gwenya called Freedom Versus. And one of those episodes looks at this question of land reform. Um, so that's probably the best way of um, you know, getting in touch. Cool. Well, thank you very much uh, for coming on to the Rational Standard Podcast. You certainly taught me a lot, and I think this will be a very interesting episode. Uh, just a reminder, subscribe to the Rational Standard Podcast on iTunes. You can listen to us on Peeper. You can follow the Rational Standard at Rational Stand on Twitter. Give us a like on Facebook. If you'd like to read our articles, our website is www.rationalstandard.com. Be sure also to, check, also to check out our partners, Being Libertarian and Think Liberty. And also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Nick Babaya. Until next time, see ya.